you have your Bibles, open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 17 today. We're going to read verses 15 to 20 as a whole. And this is really a bit of a part one, part two kind of a sermon uh, where we're going to cover the first two verses of what's considered an ancient hymn. And then the last, uh, well, I should say the first three, and then the last three we'll cover next week. And I'm just going to tell you out front that this is one of those sermons where you need to be ready to think. One of my favorite preachers of the 20th century is Dr. Mark Lloyd-Jones. And he famously said that true preaching is logic on fire. It's doctrine on fire. And I like that kind of imagery because uh, another one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, used to warn against the dangers of not having the, the, the true presence of the Holy Spirit in preaching and in, even in religious experiences. And what Jonathan Edwards used to say is, you know the Holy Spirit is there when you have both light and heat. In other words, you can have heat in a lot of places. You can have a, a, a stirring of emotions and inner feelings and things like that really easily in a lot of places. That doesn't mean that the presence of the Holy Spirit is there because you don't know the presence of the Holy Spirit by mere emotional feelings and experiences. You have to have light as well. And we know what light is. Light is truth. And truth ultimately is Jesus as he is articulated throughout the word, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So you need light and you need heat. And this sermon is gonna be a lot of light. It's gonna be a lot of truth packed into a few short verses where we're going to have to think together. And really, this ought to be the kind of sermon that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit can't help as they hear the doctrines proclaimed, but say, amen and amen. Because really what we're doing is we're putting a magnifying glass on Christ, the Christ that we worship and we adore and we glorify. And so my hope is as we work through this text, that would be the response of everybody in this room. Amen, amen. That's my Jesus. So let's read this together, and then we'll jump in. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, we'll read all the way through verse 20 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you. And we ask once again for your help. Lord, would you send out your Holy Spirit to give illumination so that we could understand the light that is here. Lord, help us to understand what is true from this text. 
And God, help us not just to understand what is true. Help us as we come to understand what is true from your objective word to love what is true. God, I pray that Christ would be ever present in the text with us this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you magnify Christ in this place this morning? I pray that he'd be glorified in the preaching. I pray that he'd be glorified in the listening and in everything else that remains for us to do as we gather together for the worship of Christ this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What would life be like if you were Taylor Swift? Time Magazine asked this question to Taylor a few years back, and the response is about what you would expect. There are endless piles of fan mail that come in each week, so much that it's difficult to keep track of. And not only that, there's endless emails and endless direct messages on social media and comments and all sorts of things to keep track of, the kind of things that you would expect that you would receive if you were, in fact, Taylor Swift. Fans constantly bombard Taylor with requests and questions and praises and everything else that you can imagine. And all of this is quite overwhelming, especially considering the fact that this Taylor Swift is just a 30-year-old man living in Seattle, trying to make a living as a commercial fisherman with a photography side hustle. Yes, my friends, there is more than one Taylor Swift in the world. And we all know, at least we should, that these two Taylor Swifts are not the same person. But, but the fact that they're called by the same name generates a lot of confusion. Now, how would we go about clarifying that confusion? Well, it's really quite simple, is it not? The, the only way that I could keep you confused when describing Taylor Swift was by keeping the distinctives of the person out of the conversation. As soon as I say something like Taylor Swift is a man, and he also happens to be a commercial fisherman, and he also happens to have a photography side hustle to make a little extra money on the weekends, you know that I am not talking about the celebrity singer who's one of the most famous people in the world right now. You see, we need distinctives to clarify the names. In church, the same is true and infinitely more important when it comes to the name of Jesus. Do you know the true Jesus? Do you worship the true Jesus? Do you follow the true Jesus? There are literally no more important questions in the world that I could ask you than those. You must be able to say yes to those questions. Do you cling to the right Jesus? It's an important question because as Peter boldly preached before the very man who crucified Jesus, Peter said, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There's salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, so you see, there's the Jesus of the Jews 
who, who did not see him as the divinely sent Messiah. Sure, he was a wise teacher, but his claim that he was God was too much for them. And so they rejected him. Was their Jesus a Jesus that saves? Clearly not. But, but there are lots of other Jesuses out there beyond the concept of Judaism, aren't there? There's also the Jesus of Islam. He, he was one of the great prophets and messengers of God. He is respected and highly favored. He was born of a virgin even and performed miracles, but he was a created being. And he most certainly was not God the Son. How dare anyone ever say something like that? Is this the Jesus that saves? Absolutely not. There's also the New Age Jesus. This Jesus is a, an enlightened individual who tasted of the divine by ascending to a higher state of consciousness. To, to quote the famed New Age guru Deepak Chopra, Jesus did not physically descend from God's dwelling place above the clouds, nor did he return to sit at the right hand of a literal throne. What made Jesus the Son of God was the fact that he achieved God consciousness. Can that Jesus save us? Absolutely not. And then there's the Jesus of, of agnosticism and atheism and secular historians who view him as a historical figure who had absolutely no divine or supernatural qualities about him. Is that a Jesus who can deliver us from the wreckage of a broken, pain-filled, sin-filled world of suffering that the Bible so clearly calls as brought into the world by human sin? No, that Jesus can't save you from that. What about the Jesus of theological liberalism? Theological liberals will even say that they're Christians. But, but they downplay the divine Christ and instead focus on Jesus as just a good example for us. He, he's a good example. Jesus is the example of love and in inclusivity that we ought to welcome everyone into the community of faith without question. Jesus does that. We, we just look to him as this sort of vague example of what a good moral life looks like. That Jesus doesn't really have anything to save us from because people are innately good. So what would Jesus need to save us from anyways? I'm good without him. And, and then finally, there's a Jesus that we can't ignore because it's the dominant Jesus of the religion that dominates this valley. The LDS Jesus is the ultimate example, once again, of progressing to exaltation through obedience to the laws and ordinances of their faith. So, so he sets an example that we should follow, much like theological liberalism, but he's fundamentally no different from us, except that he's progressed further than we have by conformity to divine law, which we must do as well. Is that the Jesus that saves? Now, from our historic Christian point of view, we would say certainly not. But here is the good news, folks. The true Jesus can be known. Because he's made himself known through his word. He's made himself known through his true apostles, including the apostle Paul who wrote the book of Colossians. Jesus has given us his word so that we can know who he truly is. And so when Peter says, 
this Jesus, we can know who that Jesus is. And, and we must know who this Jesus is because Peter says with absolute clarity that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if we want to be saved from eternal judgment, if we want to be rescued from the presence and the power of sin, if we want to be delivered out of the domain of darkness and enslavement to demonic powers and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, we must know the right son. We must know the true Jesus. The false Jesus has no more power to save us on the day of final judgment than a dim candle would have to light a tsunami on fire. And that's what Paul makes abundantly clear to us in our text today. He zones in on the nature of the true Jesus. And he does so through what appears, as I've already mentioned, to be an ancient hymn in verses 15 to 20. And in this hymn, Paul highlights two essential truths regarding Christ. The first is that he is supreme. And we see that in verses 15 to 17. He is supreme. And the second is that he is sufficient. And that's in verses 18 to 20. So in our text today, we're going to look at Jesus' supremacy. And the next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at his sufficiency. But in verses 15 to 17, Paul highlights the supreme nature of Christ by revealing to us four divine qualities of Christ. Quality one. Christ is God. Quality two, Christ is king. Quality three, Christ is creator. And quality four, Christ is sustainer. So let's jump in. Quality one, Christ is God. Look at the beginning of verse 15 with me there. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now that he there clearly refers back to the beloved son that we saw mentioned in verse 13. Remember, Paul is articulating here the distinctives that you must know about Christ to ensure that you're worshiping the right Christ. Because this is the Christ, as he says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There isn't forgiveness of sins from any Christ except this Christ. And so we better know who this he is. He is the image, Paul says, of the invisible God. Now, what does Paul mean by that? That word image there is where we get the word icon in English. It's a word that's often used to refer to an object that represents something that's real. So just one example would be perhaps a representation on a Roman coin. You would have a representation or an icon of Caesar on the Roman coin. That coin is obviously not Caesar. It's a representation of who he is. But Paul is not using the word icon of Jesus in that exact sense here. Because it's clear that he's not saying that Jesus is a mere representation of God. Paul is saying that Jesus is God eternally. Here's what's going on in Paul's Jewish way of thinking, okay? Remember, Jews recited the Shema every single day. 
You know what the Shema is. If you don't know the Shema, you need to have this memorized as a believer. The Shema is from Deuteronomy 6. Every good Jew would recite this every day of their lives. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One Lord. He is one. So for the Jew, there's one God, and there can be no other gods. Every other so-called God the Jews would have known is a false lie that was controlled by demonic spiritual forces. This, This one true God, the Jews believed, was utterly unique because he was set apart from creation. This Lord, Yahweh, is not like creation. He isn't a created being. He is instead the one creator who made everything that we see and know. He is the supreme being. Now, no creaturely illustration is going to be able to do justice to this divide that we call the creator-creation distinction. But perhaps just think of it this way. When I was in ninth grade biology, don't start judging me because that's the only biology class I ever took. I skipped that in college somehow. I didn't have to take it there. But in ninth grade biology, we were taught the difference between plant cells and animal cells. They both were real living organisms, but we were taught that these two types of cells were fundamentally different. A plant cell can never morph into an animal cell, and an animal cell can morph into a plant cell. The two are distinct and different from one another, and so it is when it comes to God and creation. The the creation cannot become God, because The creation doesn't share in the uniqueness of his being or his essence or his nature. Listen to how theologian Matthew Barrett explains this. He says, there is a crevasse between the finite and the infinite, between the creature and the creator. We are bound by time, but he is the eternal God outside of time altogether. We are constricted by space, but no space can contain his incorporeal being. We are always changing and becoming, but he is always the same. His perfection never fluctuates. The gap we are describing is is one between all and the nothing. However little we know of God, writes Herman Bavin, even the faintest notion implies that he is a being who is infinitely exalted above every creature. Now, friends, here's what you need to know. What I just articulated is the Jewish understanding of God that is displayed throughout the Old Testament. This is what Paul brought in to his new understanding as he understood that Christ is this God. Psalm 145.3 puts it this way. Great is Yahweh, the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So the question then becomes, where does Jesus fit into all of this? This is what early Christians had to come to understand. God is invisible. God is eternal. But but people could see Jesus. He he was a physical being. So, So how then can he make these claims that he is one with God? That's why the Jews crucified him. You see, Paul knows that there is a creator-creation distinction. 
And by quoting this hymn about Jesus Christ, he is making it abundantly clear which side of that chasm Jesus falls on, and it's not the creation. He is the creator. Now, here's how this relates to that little phrase that you see there, the image of the invisible God. One scholar named G.K. Beale, I think is particularly helpful in understanding what we need to think about here. Beale notes that the word is there. When he says he is, that word is in the Greek is what you would call a timeless or a gnomic presence. And that means that it conveys clearly that Jesus has been the image of God into eternity past. So this isn't an imaging that's referring to Jesus's humanity. It's Paul's way of conveying that Jesus has always participated in the divine, invisible oneness of God into eternity past, and he will continue to participate in that imaging into the present and into the future. Yes, he brings that imaging into humanity in his incarnation, but he's been imaging God ever since the beginning. He's been imaging God before anything existed or was created. So there's some sense in which Jesus has been as the eternal Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, as we quote in that creed that we quoted today. There's a sense in which he's been the exact and perfect representation of God for all eternity past. And Paul's going to apply this imaging to his becoming man, especially clear in the second part of the hymn, which we're going to look at next week. But here... He has Jesus' divine, eternal imaging in mind. So image here then shouldn't be understood in physical terms. The, the imaging is of the invisible God in an invisible eternity. Does that make sense? It's so important to understand. Now, much more could be said here, but we're going to get more in next week. But suffice it to say for now, here's what Paul's doing. He's definitively making the point that Jesus is God. That's what he wants you to know. Jesus is God, that one and only true God. The, the Trinitarian theology here is unmistakable. Paul never backs away from his Jewish monotheism. He declares that there is one God, but this one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Father are of one essence. Jesus is divine in a way that no creature ever has been, nor ever can be or will be. He is the invisible God. So church, we need to realize that this Jesus isn't just an example that we look up to. He is our God and we stand in awe and worship him. Some religions see Jesus as functionally nothing more than a, a big brother who's progressed further than we have. You know, in this way of thinking, I'll often use this illustration. Jesus is sort of like a varsity football starting quarterback in the high school who's ranked number one in the nation on all of the recruiting charts. He's the best of the best. He leads his high school to the state championship. Everyone looks up to him. Everyone adores him. QB1 all the way. He is that image in some people's mind. And we are just like the scrawny little brother 
who looks up to our varsity football star big brother and thinks someday I want to be like him. I haven't finished my puberty yet. I haven't got all of the muscles that are required. I need to hit my growth spurt. I need to hit the gym. I need to do a lot of work, working out in order to grow. But someday I'm going to be just like my big brother as well. Because fundamentally, I'm the same as him, just not as far progressed as he is. That is not the Jesus of the Bible, my friends. It's not the Jesus that we see Paul articulating here. That's not the Jesus that can save you from your sins. The Jesus who saves is of a different nature than ours fundamentally. Yes, he took on human flesh, but that humanity was added to his divine nature. He, he isn't a man who became Godish. He is, a, he is God who became a man. And that's the Jesus that you worship, church. Now, all of this, all of this, as I said, ought to just cause you to sit back and stand in awe of this Jesus because this was indeed the man who was in flesh walking around in the days of the Roman Empire who was indeed the God who had created everything that he was walking around in. That's your Jesus. That's the claims that he's making as he steps into the human experience. I am your God. You worship me. You follow me. You adore me. And I save you. He's the eternal image of the invisible God. But not only that, we see secondly that he's the king over creation. Quality two that Paul gives us. Christ is king. Now look at the second part of verse 15. Paul identifies Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. All right. Some of you are like, okay, he just said Christ is king. And then he read a verse that said he's the firstborn of all creation. How did he get the idea of king there? Well, I am glad that you asked because I plan to try to show you. Many people have been led astray by this one little phrase because, again, they rip it out of its Pauline Jewish context. Many people read that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation here, and they conclude that Jesus was somehow literally the firstborn of the Father or that he was the first created thing by the Father. And church, let me just be clear from the very beginning here. If you think that, it would be heresy. And I don't use the word heresy lightly. That would be to make Jesus who created you into a created thing rather than to recognize him as he is, which is as the one and only true God who is creator God and sovereign ruler over all. But we're going to see that, in fact, there's a lot of clarity on that point in verse 16. Before we get there, Let's consider here, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, firstborn language to a common Jew referred to the one in the family who shared in the same authority and rights as the father. It was a status symbol. If you were the firstborn, you had your father's authority and rights. You were to inherit it all. You, even from the day of your birth, were considered to have that authority, even if it had not been inaugurated yet. So for Paul, it no doubt alluded to, to even more of an ultimate kingship than we might read into whenever we first read this text. Because Paul, I think, is drawing this idea of firstborn from a psalm, a psalm that he would have had memorized 
a psalm that he would have sung on a regular basis. And so let's turn to that psalm and try to get into Paul's head a little bit here. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Go ahead and turn there because it would be helpful for you to be able to look at this. There's a lot of overlap between this hymn and what we see happening in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a hymn of praise to God for his sovereign and benevolent rule over all creation. It's saying God rules over the heavens. God rules over the earth. And it's also a psalm that is anticipating the Messiah who's going to come and rule over all of the earth and establish his rule through the line of David. He will establish a perfect rule where he will push out darkness and badness and everything sad, as my kids' books would say. They'll say when I say stuff like that, I read a lot of children's gospel books. But the idea here is embedded in the text. So look with me, starting in verse 20, and we'll read down to verse 27. God says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand in the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him, listen to this, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. All right. Did you hear that? I will make him the firstborn. And that's referring to David and his offspring. Now, let me just ask you a little Bible trivia question this morning. Test your Bible facts, knowledge, and all that good stuff. Was David the literal firstborn in his family? No. In fact, it was the opposite of that, wasn't it? The youngest, the scrawny one in his family. So clearly then, we see that the Jewish understanding of firstborn is, is more than literal when it comes to the messianic expectation. It's not less than that. Often it was the firstborn, but they have more than that going on when they are expecting this Messiah who would come into the earth. So Paul uses this firstborn language to identify Jesus as the firstborn king, as the, the king of Israel whom would be endowed with all of the authority and rights to rule over not just the earth, but if you go back and read the entire psalm, all of creation. This king's going to establish his rule over all. In fact, I, th I think this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, as the ESV puts it, is actually better translated, the firstborn over all creation. That's a better translation of the Greek there. This is a statement of Jesus's absolute sovereign rule. He is king. And so the question when you hear this sort of thing being established is simply this. Do you respond to him as such? Do you see Jesus as your king? He rules your life. He rules over all. You look to him with a sense of awe and honor and praise. He is your king. Is he your king? Or do you find yourself really busy building your own kingdom and mostly disregarding who he is. You know, Paul Tripp is a Christian author who comments helpfully here. He says, a few years ago, our mall had a marketing slogan, your kingdom awaits. 
Whoever came up with the phrase was a brilliant theologian and deeply understood the condition of the human heart. Since the beginning of time, the lie of the enemy has been this. Ultimate joy and satisfaction is found when you build your own kingdom. In the garden, Adam and Eve believed that they were able to build a greater and more satisfying kingdom than the kingdom of God. When the serpent said, you will be like God, he was inviting them into a false existence where they could be most high and rule unchallenged. Every day, just like with that mall slogan, you and I are invited to build our own kingdom. But we can't blame the retailers and advertising agencies. It's only ever first because of the sin inside of us that we are attracted to the evil outside of us. So where are we at risk of building our kingdoms in the situations, locations, and relationships of everyday life? I'll just give you a few examples of where you might be tempted to usurp King Jesus' power and authority over your life and build your own kingdom. Here's one, comfort and pleasure. You will be tempted to love your own comfort and your own pleasure in the things of this world more than to submit to King Jesus. you got to remember the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt. They were delivered out of slavery. And at one point, soon after they had been delivered, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Why? So that they could have meat and fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlics. We are going to be tempted to disregard King Jesus, to chase after worldly comforts, church. You got to watch out for that. You got to be mindful that that's one area where Satan is going to hit you. Get comfy. Enjoy the pleasure of these things. Get a little more sleep. Get a little more slumber. Lay your head down to rest. Don't worry about all of that chasing after the good things of the Lord. Just relax. Second area where Satan's going to tempt you is in your schedules and organization. Do you arrange your life to ensure that you're devoted to God's purposes and not your own? Okay, remember when Israel made the golden calf? We're, we're reminded that they did so because Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain. So, so they didn't want to wait on the Lord. That They wanted to take matters into their own Hands. This can be a temptation, especially for task-oriented people. Are you getting busy and forgetting the Lord? Are you forgetting to sit at his feet and worship him? Is Jesus the one who's in charge of your schedule, or are you? Are you prioritizing the things of the Lord, studying the word, being with God's people, being in church every Sunday to exalt the name of Jesus with other believers and ensure that his name is being proclaimed and his fame is going to the ends of the earth? Are you arranging your schedule for gospel kingdom focuses or are you just arranging it according to your own will and desires? Think about it. Satan will try to hit you there. Third, this is the last one I'll give you, is, is affirmation and approval. Are you living for the glory of King Jesus or for the approval of man? Okay, devotion to King Jesus means that you are jealous for his glory and his reputation in the world and not for your own. Is that how you live your life? Are you fully devoted to him such that what other people say to you or say about you behind your back is totally unimportant to you so long as you are honoring and glorifying the name of King Jesus. You can tell by whether or not you ever tell people about who King Jesus is. Are you living in the fear of man? 
Are you, are you putting yourself out there and saying, Jesus' name advances in this world by the proclamation of who he is in the gospel, which is articulated in the word? Are you speaking the truth to people in love? Or are you just preserving your own reputation, standing up for yourself, honoring yourself, glorifying yourself? Is your life devoted to King Jesus or to self? Now, church, Jesus possesses all power and all authority over creation. That's what Paul's saying here. The world and everything in it belongs to him, and that is your king. And it's going to be abundantly obvious to your very own eyes someday, and everybody's going to know it. But you're to live for him now. He rescued you out of the domain of darkness and into his kingdom so that you would glorify him and honor him as ambassadors praising him for who he is and making sure that other people hear about who he is too. That's the way we ought to live our lives. Now, the kingship of Christ is directly linked to this next quality as well. Quality three, Christ is creator. Christ is creator. Look at verse 16 with me. Paul writes, For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is where Paul makes the eternal nature and position of Christ abundantly clear. Some of the more ambiguous language to our 21st century minds in verse 15 become unambiguous in this verse. All things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And by all things here, Paul means literally all things. Christians have affirmed ever since the beginning this essential doctrine. Before creation, there was God alone. And God spoke by the word of his power and created all that exists. He created the heavens and the earth. He created all things visible and invisible. He created all powers, both earthly and spiritual. He made everything, and nothing that exists exists outside of his sovereign creative design. And and here, Paul makes clear that the instrument of creation was the second person of the Trinity himself. Jesus was the agent of creation. That means when God went to create things, he didn't outsource things to the angels. He did it himself by the work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. So this means that without Jesus, nothing that exists would exist. He is the very means of our existence. And as creator, he has rights over his creation. And that's Paul's whole point right there. Remember, the Colossians are being tempted to outsource their own faith to these various spiritual experiences that the false teachers are telling them are essential for their faith to be made complete. They need to be having visions and revelations. They need to be having subjective experiences with angelic beings if they want to be considered a truly heightened and enlightened spiritual people. This is the claim of the false teachers. And Paul is saying that centering your religion on these sorts of subjective experiences is really to subject yourself to demonic spiritual powers 
It takes the focus off of Christ. It, it attracts your attention away from the true Christ and toward false worship. It, it causes you to trust in wrong spiritual powers. So, so Paul wants to faithfully represent Christ so that the thought of doing that sort of a thing would seem absolutely and stunningly foolish to the Colossians. Why would we look for spiritual experiences outside of Christ when we've been united with Christ, who's the one who created all of those thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities that are good or perhaps bad in the first place? He made all of that. So why would I look for experiences with these angelic forces, whether demonic forces or good is not even an important part of the equation here. Why would you do that if Christ is all and you are in him? He's all you need. So, so you just look to Christ, Colossians. That's what Paul is saying. Look to the creator. He's the supreme one, and he's the only one that you need to keep your focus on. And in fact, what Paul is warning about is to place your attention on any sort of spirituality that is not centered on the true Christ is to participate in false worship. Because, because Paul makes it clear that all of those things were created by him. So if you're chasing after that stuff, you're not chasing after the creator, you're chasing after idols. He isn't just the means of all creation, friends. Jesus is the end of all creation, too. All things, Paul says, are made for Jesus. They're made for him. Well, what this is saying is really simple, but it's profoundly incomprehensible as well. The purpose of all creation is the glory of Christ. You know, we, we like to say here, we're building a gospel community for the glory of Christ because everything exists for the glory of Christ. Everything. One day at the end of time, all creation is going to be rightly turned toward the eternal worship of Jesus. And any religion that has an end goal other than that is simply not true religion. Because this is the defining reality, you see, friends. If Christ is who he says he is, if Christ is who the apostles say that he is, there cannot be multiple paths. Because there's one Jesus the creator of all, and all of creation exists so that one day everything would be brought into the worship of him. Just give you a couple of quick implications on this point here. As the creator of all creation, here's what this means. Jesus has the right to do whatever he pleases with creation. And the creation has no right to question his motives or his operations. I remember seeing a video a couple years back of a friend of mine who is a potter, and he recorded a video of himself smashing to pieces all of his defective works. And I remember thinking to myself, those look pretty good to me. You know, like, why, why are you just destroying those sorts of things? But as the creator of those things, my friend decided that those pieces needed to be objects of his judgment rather than objects displayed on the shelf for their beauty. Now, suppose that I had walked into that pottery shop myself and I started smashing whatever I wanted to smash. What would you think the result of that would be? It wouldn't be good, would it? 
because I do not have right over his creation. Well, so it is with God, my friends. We are the creation, not the creator. So we don't have right to judge God's judgments. His judgments are good and right and true because he is the creator of all and all was made for him. You know, we get into really dangerous territory when we begin to place ourselves as judge over the creator. And that's why Paul would tell, tell us in Romans 9.20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? See, as Christ's creatures, the proper posture before him is to remain in humble dependence upon him as his creation. Teach me, Lord. Show me your truth. Show me your ways. I'm devoted to you. I'll I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. You are good. You are righteous. You are true. All of your judgments are perfect, and I want to worship you for them. Now, second implication is to remember that the creation exists to bring honor and glory to the creator. And our our value and worth as the creation is not embedded in the meaning that we create for ourselves. It's found in projecting praise to the one who made us. Okay, I'm sure you've heard of the famous artist, Vincent Van Gogh, right? You've heard of Vincent Van Gogh. If you haven't, then, you know, get with the program, go look up some of his paintings and stuff later on. Well, In the late 1990s, someone discovered a painting that they thought could have been done by him in a a French villa that they had just purchased. And so they took the painting to an art critic where the art critic deemed it to be unauthentic. This isn't Van Gogh. Sorry. Send you on your way. The, The painting looked like it should have been a Van Gogh, but since it wasn't, it turned out that it really had little to no value at all. That is until it was brought in for a second look in 2013. And they used a highly sophisticated technology which was able to enlighten them to the fact that this painting was in fact a Van Gogh piece. And instantly, the piece went from having little to no value to being one of the most valuable art pieces in the world. Why? Why the change? Because what gave it its value was the attachment it had to its creator. The same thing is true for us, beloved. We only find our true value and our true meaning and our true purpose when we come to know the God who created us and give him the praise that is due his name. You see, Van Gogh's art is valuable because it brings praise to Van Gogh. And our value is, and worth is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus made us and we belong to him. We are valuable because we give praise to him who've been created in his image in a lesser sense. We'll get more into that again next week. I want to get into it now, but we go for like two hours. Okay. So the question is, don't want to? (laughs) The question is, is that where you locate your worth though, friends, and the fact that you've been created by God? Is that where you find your meaning, your purpose for all of your life? Now, Paul doesn't just stop there by recognizing that Jesus is the creator of all things. This is another amazing move. He goes on to make clear that Jesus is also the sustainer of all things. Quality four. Christ is sustainer. Look at verse 17. 
says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This phrase begins with a reiteration of what Paul's already covered when he says that Jesus is before all things, okay? That means Jesus isn't created. Jesus is prior to creation. He always has been and he is God. He is the supreme cause. He's not the effect of some prior cause. But then Paul expands by saying, in him, all things hold together. Ancient philosophers in Paul's day often sought to understand what what is it that brings cohesion and order in the midst of what appears to be a chaotic universe. And here, Paul is saying that Jesus is the one who is holding everything in order. Jesus is the one who is keeping all of creation together. And we're going to see next week that he's ultimately moving everything in creation toward an end-time reality in which there's going to be no more chaos, but he's going to put an end to all of the demonic forces, the rulers, spiritual authorities, the powers, all these sorts of things that create chaos in the world using the human fallen condition in our sin. Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself and cause all things to be at peace in him by doing away with wickedness, by judging what's wrong. What Paul is saying about Jesus here is stunning in a Greco-Roman context. Because philosophers would never have considered that the entity that binds and holds the universe together could become a man. That's exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus. Listen to one scholar on this, Douglas Moo. This concept has analogies in the wisdom word tradition, which in turn is probably reflecting certain Platonic and Stoic emphases about the cohesion of the universe. How's everything together? Again, however, the idea that an aspect of God's character or immaterial concept holds the universe together is a far cry from the startling claim that a man who had recently lived and been crucified by the Romans was the one in whom all things were held together. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. As is true of every line in this hymn, there is particular application to the Colossian Christians who were perhaps being tempted to find coherence by pursuing other religious options in their context. In response, Paul wants them to understand that things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. Church, do you realize just how mighty and magnificent our Christ truly is? He is sustaining everything in the created universe by the word of his power. He is holding everything together. The the imagery here is really beautiful and hopeful for creatures like us because we can't hold anything together in our own lives even, can we? We are objects of chaos. We are disorderly. We are prone to chaos. We are confused. We, We are what some people down in the South might call a hot mess. Right? Well, we 
constantly fail to love people. We stumble into sin. We do harm to other people as a result of our sins. We often fail to listen to the truth and take the lies of Satan as if they are the word of God. He would tempt us to disbelieve that Jesus is better than sex and better than money and better than power and better than approval. And and we chase after those things, creating more disorder and chaos in our own lives and in the world. Satan would have us to not find our joy and our hope and our comfort in the Christ who is holding us together by the word of his power, literally. But there's hope, friends, in this text. Jesus is the one who's holding things together so that you don't have to. So that you don't ultimately have to rely on yourself to do so. You see, that, that's the joy that the believer in Christ comes to understand. Well, we come to realize that Christ is in control. He's in control. And and we can live and walk by faith that he really has delivered us out of the domain of darkness. That he really did come into the world, broke in as the one and only creator God, and that in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, he paid the final penalty for sin. He cancels the power of sin over us. Satan has no ability to accuse us anymore because we know we are forgiven by what Christ has accomplished. Jesus saves us out of Egypt, so to speak, and he is going to deliver his people into the promised land. He began a good work in us. He will bring it to completion. He is holding everything together. He won't lose us. He won't forsake us. He won't lose his grip. He will remain faithful even when we are faithless. He will remain steadfast even when we begin to waver. He will love us to the end because he bought us with his own precious blood. No power of hell, no scheme of man, no power of darkness, nothing can pluck us from the hand of Jesus because we stand in his forever the definitive, distinctive, creative, holding power. The, the true Jesus rules supremely. Are you worshiping that Christ? I hope so. Because friends, he's the only Jesus who saves. Now, I just want to make one final application to be clear on something here. Before we close. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, but I don't have perfect knowledge of this Jesus. What if I have incomplete knowledge? What if I'm not theologically all there yet? What if even some of these ideas sound new to me today and I thought I was already a Christian? Well, here's what you need to know. It's not your perfect knowledge of Jesus that saves you. It's the Jesus of perfect knowledge that has revealed himself in the scripture that saves you. Listen, if you have been saved by Christ and you're in him and and he has caused you to be born again to a living hope, if he has united you to himself, then here's the thing. You're not going to come to perfect knowledge of him right away and you're really not going to come to perfect knowledge of him ever because there will always be a creator-creation distinction even when we are in glory. We will continue to stand in awe of Christ, even in glory. But the good news for the believer is that when Christ unites himself to you, when you place your faith in him, your hope 
in him alone. He begins to sanctify you. He begins to answer Paul's prayer here that he prays in verse 9. From the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That implies that you don't have the full knowledge of his will. You don't have all the spiritual wisdom. You don't have all the spiritual understanding that you ought to have and that you will continue to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding as you study Christ. So the good news is that if you don't have that perfect knowledge, that's okay. Because it's the Christ that we are proclaiming who saves, not your knowledge of him. But you need to know who he is. And you need to respond to him as he has revealed himself to be. Because if you are not worshiping the Christ that's been proclaimed here, then you have not been worshiping the true Christ. There are fundamental distinctions that you must get right. Is your Christ God? Did your Christ create you? Is he the one and only God? Is he the only hope of salvation on the last days? Have you got the fundamentals right? And then all the other stuff is just added to you throughout your Christian life so that you can give more praise and honor and glory to him. But some of you in this room need to get the fundamentals right this morning. You need to turn from false conceptions of Jesus and embrace the true Jesus wholeheartedly as he is. He's shown himself to you this morning. Will you worship him? Or will you turn and run the other way hardening your heart so that the next time and the next time and the next time that you hear him proclaim, it's going to be harder for you to come to the truth. Don't do it. Embrace the true Christ. Bow your knee to him. He is supreme. And he's sufficient. He's all you need. Let's pray that that would be the case, not only for the one who needs to do it for the first time, that for those of us who are in Christ we would continue to glory in him more and more as we see him for who he truly is as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we praise you for coming into the world on a rescue mission to save us from our sins. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying the work of redemption to our hearts that we would believe that these things are true Lord, we know that we can't make ourselves see if we're blind. We need you to make blind see. And you have done that for all who are in Christ. And I pray that as we continue to study you, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in our knowledge of you so that we can bring praise to you, so that we can be more pleasing to you even for the glory of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we come to know who Christ is, that we would be more conformed into his image, morally speaking that we would become more like Jesus, proclaimers of the truth of the gospel, preachers of the truth of the gospel, bold, even unto the point of death if necessary, loving and kind, joyful, that we would truly manifest the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.